Hello, everyone, and welcome to the July episode of the Global in the Granite State podcast, a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. My name is Tim Horgan, and I am the host of this series. Today, we look at the sad history of residential schools that were looking to reform Native cultures and bring them into civilized society. This is a particularly powerful discussion with the recent discovery of unmarked graves on at least three of these schools in Canada. While my own education took a brief look at the history of these schools, this discussion was eye-opening in terms of what actually occurred, both in Canada as well as here in the U.S. I hope you come away from this episode with a better understanding of the harm these schools caused, how governments need to do more for Native populations, and that we all need to be wary of imposing our own best intentions onto others. It is through culturally sensitive programs and lenses that we can celebrate the diversity that we see in this world. Without further ado... I want to preface this conversation with a definition from the UN Convention on the Prevention and Punishment of the Crime of Genocide. In the present convention, genocide means any of the following acts committed with the intent to destroy, in whole or in part, a national, ethnical, racial, or religious group, such as killing members of the group, causing serious bodily or mental harm to members of the group, deliberately inflicting on the group conditions of life calculated to bring about its physical destruction, imposing measures intended to prevent births within the group, and or forcibly transferring children of the group to another. I outline this for you based on the conversation I had with Dr. Ronald Nietzsche, who brought to my attention that what we are talking about today fits the definition of a genocide, although many people talk about this dark period of history as a cultural genocide. The distinction here is important, according to Dr. Neeson, as there is no legal definition of cultural genocide, and it is a term that is often used to soften the blow as people come to grips with what happened not too long ago. As you probably already know, I am talking about the use of residential schools in Canada specifically, but around the world in general, as a way to extinguish Native cultures. Dr. Neeson is the Distinguished James McGill Chair in the Department of Anthropology and an associate member of the Faculty of Law at McGill University in Montreal, Canada. And he is also an anthropologist with wide-ranging research experience, including with the Songhe of Mali, the Cree communities of Quebec, Ontario, and Manitoba, and the Sami of Northern Europe. He wrote a book called Truth and Indignation, Canada's Truth and Reconciliation Commission on Indian Residential Schools, which is how we connected for this podcast. You will find a link to this book in the podcast description. 
These residential schools are big in the news recently, as Native communities in Canada have recently discovered over 1,000 potential unmarked graves at the site of three former residential schools, which were run in partnership with the government and several religious organizations. While the news is currently focusing on the sensational story of the gruesome discoveries, there's a lot more depth and nuance to this all. So let's start at the base level of what happened in this more than a centuries-long story. The schools were designed to deal with the problem, quote-unquote, the problem posed by the presence of Indigenous peoples on lands that colonial states coveted, but also peoples who had different ways of life, different ways of seeing the world that didn't really match the ideals of civilization that were prevalent in the 19th and early 20th centuries. So many places used Indian residential schools or their equivalents to quote unquote, and here I really mean the danger quotes, educate peoples who were again, quote unquote, uncivilized, to bring them into civilization. So there was a, a real civilizing mission behind the establishments of these schools. Honestly, it was genocidal in its orientation and the effort to shape the children, to remove them from their language and their culture and to remake them. And because of that, it left room for the kinds of abuse that we heard so much about, even more than the notorious orphanages and schools for the deaf and other institutions that we've heard about. Because the children went into these schools starting with the assumption that there was something that needed to be corrected in them. This idea of civilizing these children, who were taken from their families, really played a deep role in what the teachers and administrators believed was the goal of the education they were providing. I talked to a lot of the priest brothers and nuns who ran the schools. I did an interview with about 30 of them, which, you know, a lot of social scientists would scoff at, but at least I gave it a try. And they were almost remembering the schools fondly. They talked about being on frozen lakes and teaching the girls to make bread and giving the boys military drills and giving them personalities. One of them put it that way. We gave them personalities. And my sense is that that's what they saw as education. It wasn't education in the sense that you and I think of it as developing critical faculties and knowledge of science and a sense of justice and a sense of social purpose. It was education in the sense of instilling the values of civilization. And that's their raison d'etre. And that's what motivated a lot of the people who ran them, thinking that they were doing good, convinced that they were doing good. Speaking of the people who ran these schools, the government funded them, but mostly turned the administration over to Christian religious groups who undertook the day-to-day -day operations. So first of all, I think it's important to underscore that the schools varied a lot. There were mostly four denominations of Christianity that ran these schools. Most of them in Canada, like 60%, were run by Oblates and Grey Sisters. And even within the Oblates, they varied. So a lot of it depended on the leadership of the school, the size of the school. So the larger schools tended towards stricter discipline, stricter control of the children's bodies and minds, and sadism in the enforcement of that discipline. 
So the Kamloops Indian Residential School that we heard so much about where the first 250 bodies were found using ground penetrating radar was one of these schools. In listening to the testimony of the Truth Commission that operated from 2010 to 2015, it was clear to me listening to the testimony that there were particular schools that came up again and again as sources of abuse and trauma. That is not to say that only some schools gave all of the others a bad name. Rather, it was endemic to the residential schools, I think. It was really rare to hear people talk favorably about a teacher or teachers. It happened in the testimony that I heard. But really, it wasn't that much. A few bad apples in a system it doesn't really jibe, you know? It's just not the way we would characterize this. One thing that is a little hard to believe is that institutions such as this were created to allow for the mistreatment of its students, but rather that it is the all-too-familiar outcome of such a system. The United Nations Permanent Forum on Indigenous Issues commissioned a study in 2007 on the impact of residential schools the world over. While a major focus was on the U.S. and Canadian models, there are examples of similar practices, particularly in Latin America, North America, the Arctic, and the Pacific. The world over, it seems that the goal was to help the natives assimilate into the dominant culture, to help them escape their quote-unquote backwards ways. I think it's important to recognize that the impulse behind the schools was actually humanitarian. There is the idea that these children were children and they were just a part of a society that was wayward and savage, to use the term, that was common. And so you needed to remove them from their families, remove them from their communities, and educate them from the beginning. So that's how they began. That's the principle with which they began. And it wasn't a matter of wanting to make an institution that would be cruel that would kill the children, there was the idea that they were killing a culture, right? That you eliminate a language and a culture and enfold them in the embrace of civilization in the language of the time. The orientation was, first of all, widely accepted in the churches and widely accepted by the public. You know, people were like behind this, right? There were films made, there were attestations for how wonderful it is, there were photographs taken, children kneeling obediently in their bunk beds, praying, and, you know, what could be better than that at the time? People thought, you know, look what we're doing. It's great. This is a warning to us. We'd better be careful with our good intentions and how we go about enacting them. This is certainly a powerful message. As the U.S. and other countries interact with each other, with other people, and consider cultural power dynamics, we do need to consider the inherent value of different ways of life. This is particularly important in today's field of international aid. One quick story that outlines this well is a rural community in Africa that was offered by an international NGO the opportunity to have solar panels installed to create power. The community declined the offer as a similar offer had been made before and the panels had been installed. However, the previous NGO that had installed the solar panels did not provide any training on the maintenance and or, or operation of the system. So it quickly fell into disrepair. While the first NGO had the best of intentions, they did not execute the plan in a way that was culturally sensitive. Getting back to our story, another thing that may surprise you is that these schools were around a lot longer 
than many people realize. So the last one was closed in 1996. And the wind down started in the, I suppose, the 60s and 70s. The two schools that we're talking about in the new today in British Columbia, in Cranbrook and Kamloops, closed down in 69 and 70. So that was the big wind down. But then there were other, other initiatives that took place. There were, of course, day schools that continued. And some of the schools were repurposed to day schools. I have a personal memory of living in Terrace, British Columbia, and, and seeing Indigenous children bus to my school. But I never saw them in the classroom. There were annexes that were built in the back of the school and they had their own education there. So we had a junior high school that was strictly segregated. So there were these interim responses to the closure of these schools that were also not entirely satisfactory to say the least. Before we move into the equally important discussion on the current treatment of First Nation peoples in Canada, it is important to note that Canada took this model from the United States. It is unclear today what life was like in these schools in the U.S., as no comprehensive investigation into their history has yet been conducted. The Biden administration's Department of Interior has just announced this investigation, and it is not yet clear what will come of it. So in the United States, the first boarding schools began as an aftermath of the Indian Wars and what, what to do with these soldiers. And so the first boarding schools were oriented towards teaching adults, right? Reshaping these adults. And then there was a man by the name of Lieutenant Pratt who participated in these wars and got the idea, like, look, you know, if we start with the children, get them when they're young and remove them from their families, then we can really do something with them. So a lot of money went into these schools, the Carlisle School in Pennsylvania being the most famous. And Canada, instead of having it run by the government, they decided, I suppose following the logic, look, we're reshaping these souls. So let's give it to people who have experience with that thing. Let's give it to the missionaries. Let's give it to people who specialize in that. And so they accepted the model and assigned the responsibility of running the schools to Christian denominations. While the U.S. government has made some minor attempts at apologizing, the closest being President Obama signing the Native American Apology Resolution, which was buried in a defense spending authorization bill and only apologized on behalf of all of Americans, not the government itself. The Canadian government, however, issued an apology in 2007 and created a truth and reconciliation process that ran from 2010 to 2015. The Truth and Reconciliation Commission was an odd commission in comparative terms because there wasn't this civil war, right? There wasn't a revolution that we were trying to deal with as Canadians. Canada stayed Canada. We're talking now on Canada Day and people are waving flags. So that was the same situation then. But what happened was uh, there were massive lawsuits that were being filed against the church and the indigenous litigants were winning consistently. And, and it got bigger and bigger to the point, thousands of lawsuits. Then the Assembly of First Nations, the national organization, filed a huge lawsuit that then got everyone's attention and got everyone to the table. And in 2008, the Indian Residential Schools Settlement Agreement was concluded. And that brought the Truth Commission into being. It extended its mandate and it operated for five years. It heard many thousands of testimonies in seven national events and numerous co community and local events. So the commission traveled the country. 
And in the public events, people could give private testimony or public testimony. In the public events, some of the upper echelons of the churches came to give apologies, but the government was largely absent. They'd send a minister at, at the opening ceremonies and the opening session, but they usually didn't stay, not for long. So the churches had a presence, but the government didn't. And that's very interesting to me because the government was found by the Supreme Court to be 75% responsible for the schools. The government funded and underfunded the schools, created the conditions of the schools, but all the attention went to the priests, brothers, and nuns who ran the schools. The missionary goals of the schools were something that the government shared and that reflected wider values at the time. But I think we haven't been paying enough attention to the government. And I think it's something that is easy to slip through the cracks right now, some years after the commission has done its work. That's actually one of the arguments that I try to make in truth and indignation. Another really interesting focus of Professor Neeson's book is the conversations he had with the priests, brothers, and nuns who ran these schools particularly about the acceptance of the harm that was done. The Presbyterians and Anglicans have issued their apologies, but the Catholics are a bit of a tricky animal because they're not centralized. We think of the Pope as the head of this vast central organization, but the different dioceses do things their own way. Some of the bishops early on issued their own apologies, their own recognition of the harm like way early on, and others resisted. Some of the priests that I spoke to are, are contrite, but at the same time think that they meant well at the time. I hear a lot. We had no idea. We didn't, we didn't know. We didn't see the suffering that we're hearing about. And we didn't know. As a whole, we didn't want to participate in the Truth and Reconciliation Commission, and the commission didn't have any power to compel them to do so. So they stayed away from it in droves, mostly in their retirement homes, and seethed at the testimony that was being presented. And that sort of undid everything that they dedicated their lives to systematically, just cut away at it. In talking to me, they tried to justify their life commitments and activities. They weren't contrite. They pointed to things like the dictionaries that some of them had made very, very meticulously and systematically. And they said to me, like, how could we have wanted to eliminate their languages if we were so careful in learning them? Here's the evidence. And so given the chance to have an audience, they told me about their feelings about the testimony and about the, the commission. And I don't know if since then those views have shifted. I haven't talked to anyone since the last edition of my book in 2017, uh, Truth and Indignation. My sense is that there's less genuinely heartfelt con contrition than you might imagine. I don't know what the discovery of the graves will do in terms of shifting that. I think that it's very hard to ignore, and I think that it's very hard to come to, to grips with, and it's a material manifestation of the of the worst harm that one can do. So my sense is that it will probably lead to deeper, deeper thought and I hope deeper contrition. I'm encouraged to learn that the Pope is going to make a visit and will hear those voices and those concerns of the indigenous peoples who were subjected to these schools. Of course, 
All of this plays into the current realities for Native communities in both countries. Just because the residential school programs ended does not mean that all is well for these people. So the way it looks today, of course, is a patchwork. Many uh, reserve communities have their own schools and their own school boards. And those two vary in terms of their standards, their ability to teach Indigenous customs and languages. Uh, there is a Cree school board, one of the communities that I studied um, in northern Quebec, that teaches the Cree language in grades uh, one to three exclusively and then introduces English. And so that is successful in those terms. Many struggle with standards and qualifying students in the remote communities for higher education, certainly. But again, it's, it's mixed. But it is no longer accepted since the 1990s, like categorically not accepted, that the schools would be imposed upon them in the manner that, that they were in the past. And the reservations themselves? Right. So the conditions on reserves in Canada are, shall we say, desperate. This is one of the realities that the Trudeau government actually hasn't faced in the aftermath of the Truth Commission and its recommendations. And it's one of the things that people in Canada are coming to realize with the discovery of these unmarked graves. They're, I think there's a, a curiosity and awareness that we're starting to get. It's building on the work of the commission and the sort of wider uh, understanding of what the schools were, what they were about. But I've visited many communities and in all of them, there's, there's just not the same kind of resources um, being provided by government. They're neglected, they're underfunded, and that has its consequences. In the 1990s, after the last schools were closed, I was in a community that had the clinic shut down because there were two nurses that were seeing 160 patients a day and they were burning out. So they put a sign up that said, heart attack and un uncontrolled bleeding only, you know, and then a number. So these aren't the kinds of services that anybody else would accept. But because in Canada, there's a piece of legislation called the Indian Act, and that provides a regime of services to reserve communities that are different than those provided to other Canadians. And in most cases, it's abysmally less and the reserves are abysmally impoverished. And you have the consequences of that in drug addiction and suicides, youth suicide. But again, the youth suicide varies from reserve to reserve. It isn't everywhere. And uh, studies have shown that those communities that have what we would call loosely self-determination, like women serving as chief, uh, part participation, better funding, resources, um, predictably do better in terms of these indications, indices of things that are going wrong in a big way. I wanted to end this episode with some insights from Dr. Neeson about what the Canadian government can do to right some of the wrongs that were and still are being perpetuated on these people. I believe that the U.S. government could learn a lot from the experiences that Canada is currently going through. Well, I think that righting the wrong involves improving the lives of the Indigenous peoples and recognizing their claims to sovereignty. Righting the wrong involves getting people off of welfare and into meaningful work and work that they shape and determine on their own terms. 
I think that writing the wrong involves broadly sharing resources. So the Truth and Reconciliation Commission answered your question much more fully than I could with 94 recommendations that basically covered the gamut of Indigenous dominant society relations and Indigenous government relations, covering a whole range of things to equality in education, to resource development, to recognition of sovereignty, to you know, on and on and on, all kinds of things. And the fact that there are 94 items that remain largely untouched, largely untouched, is an indication of the scope of the problem which I would call an ongoing crisis. It's something that you and I, if, if you were to experience life in some of the communities, in the, especially in the far North, you would immediately recognize it as a crisis. And yet it's, it's life. It's people who are used to things as they are to a large extent, but it's, it's not acceptable. And they are resisting and protesting and trying to call attention to these circumstances. And it's a matter of nobody being there to listen and nobody be there, being there to see it. You can find out more about the 94 calls to action that the Truth and Reconciliation Commission had recommended at the end of their work. I will put a link in the description of this episode for where to find this information. Thank you to everyone for listening to this episode of the Global and the Granite State podcast. It has been my pleasure bringing you this important conversation, and I hope that you have enjoyed it. We would love to get your feedback and insights on this discussion, as well as others you are hoping to have in the coming months. We host these discussions for you and hope that we are hitting on topics you are interested in. Drop a message in the comments section to let us know how we are doing. This has been a program of the World Affairs Council of New Hampshire. Our host, editor, producer, and jack-of-all-trades is Tim Horgan. Our theme music, as always, is Admin by A.A. Alto. And our episode music is The Great Spiral Dance, Siddhartha Chorus. Thanks again for listening. <music>